Vibrant Health, a clear-thinking, happier mind, and vastly improved athletic performance. The Renaissance Humans podcast is all about pointing out what almost everyone is leaving on the table. We're focused on science-based methods of lifespan extension, disease avoidance, and mental performance improvement. We're about making life better through diet and lifestyle changes. Whether you're struggling with a chronic health condition or just looking to find a little more energy for your day, this is the show for you. My name is Andrew Perlot. Welcome to the Renaissance Humans podcast. History is full of underdogs, people who were doing things that were outside of what was considered normal or right or valuable or popular. And these people often had their own ideologies, philosophies, systems of thought, and ways of looking at the world. And some of them were really quite popular at a time. Think communism. At a time, it was one of the two leading political ideologies, and yet today it's faded away to almost nothing. But what about medical ideologies? I think a lot of people think of medical ideas as having had this, oh, we started off in the Stone Age in terms of medical ideas, and gradually we got to this current peak, and nothing that came before could ever be better than what we have now, and that's how it is, and that's how it's going to be. We're just getting better all the time. But actually, There are some ideas around today which may be better than the dominant ideas, but they were around in the time of Hippocrates back in antiquity. Since at least the 1800s, and really most definitely since the early 1900s, there have been a number of practitioners practicing what eventually came to be called natural hygiene. And... If you were to Google natural hygiene right now, I guarantee you would find at least a few pages talking about how it's a bunch of quackery. And yet many of the ideas that proponents of natural hygiene have championed over the years have been adopted into the dominant medical narrative, the dominant belief system, and proven by science to be effective. But the idea that underlies natural hygiene has generally been mocked and or ignored. For well over a 100 years, proponents of natural hygiene, practitioners of natural hygiene, have been operating in the margins of the medical system, helping people because what they're suggesting seems to be effective, but yet they have not been embraced by the overall medical system. But that's actually starting to change. Their ideas are becoming more and more mainstream as science actually investigates how health works and how you overcome disease. Today, my guest on the podcast is Dr. Alan Goldhammer, who would be one of those believers in natural hygiene who's kind of been operating on the margins, but unlike a lot of them, he hasn't been content to stay there. In fact, he has been advancing, without much dogmatism, the ideas of natural hygiene and the treatment modalities that practitioners use and bringing them into the light of published medical literature and showing that they're actually incredibly effective. Dr. Goldhammer is a co-founder of the True North Health Center in Santa Rosa, California. It's generally considered to be uh, the most well-respected fasting center in the United States, and I believe it's actually technically the largest in the world for water-only fasting. 
Goldhammer heads up a staff including multiple chiropractors, MDs, and other healthcare professionals at the facility. So without further ado, let's bring on Dr. Goldhammer. Dr. Goldhammer, welcome to the Renaissance Humans podcast. Pleasure to be here. Okay, so uh, we're going to circle back and get to a little bit about your history and how you got involved with what you do and the inspiration for what you do. But uh, before we get into that, I'd like to kind of just cut to the chase a little bit. Think about the most vibrant people that you know, the healthiest people you know, with uh, the most steady levels of health. What To what do you attribute their success? What are they doing that really sets them apart? I think it's very clear that health is the result of healthful living. So people that take on responsibility for providing the requirements of health tend to get predictable results. And healthful living involves diet, sleep, and exercise. So if you control what you put in your mouth, uh, you get appropriate activity, and you have a chance to recover uh, with sleep and rest, uh, the body does what it does best, and that's heal itself. Mm. So the, the goal is to try to be getting healthier a little bit faster than you're getting older and sicker. And if you succeed, uh, you're able to sustain health. If you fail, uh, then you know, you, you'll see inevitable consequences all around you. So with that in mind, you run the True North Health Center, which is famous for fasting people. It's one of the few places in the country where you can go and get uh, medically supervised water fasting. And you also are a big proponent of uh, vegan diets of, uh, I guess you would say, a natural hygiene-esque approach, which is to some extent what you just uh, described. So could you tell us a little bit about setting up True North, what the impetus was, and uh, a little bit about um, the programs you run there? Well, I personally became interested in health at a very early age, actually. Um, uh, even as a preteen, I, I had a good friend named Doug Lyle. He used to beat me badly in basketball, and it really frustrated me, and so I decided I was going to beat him. But uh, practice didn't help because it appeared he practiced as well and kept getting better. And so I thought if I got healthier, I might be able to crush him. <laughs> so I began to read books and came across uh, a number of books, including Herbert Shelton, on the principles of natural hygiene. It made sense to me. So I thought, well, I would adopt an exclusively plant food diet, avoid all sugar oil and salt and animal foods, and uh, see if that didn't improve my health so I'd be able to beat uh, Dr. Lyle. Of course, back then he wasn't Dr. Lyle, he was just Doug. But in any case, I adopted this uh, program uh, exclusively by the time I was about 16, and uh, unfortunately it failed. Uh, he adopted the same diet, and to this day he still, he still beats me badly every time we play. But it did get me interested in health and healthful living. And I met a gentleman named Dr. Benish who was an early hygienic practitioner, and he told me that being a doctor like this was the best job in the whole world because the patients did all the work, the body did all the healing, and all the doctor had to do was take credit for it, and I thought, that's the job for me, so Did you end up getting any better at basketball? Did you find that it did make some... Oh, yeah, I, I kept getting better, but so did he, and, and he still continues to get better, so, you know, I, I've never really been able... I'm hoping maybe as we get into our seventh or eighth decades, maybe he'll 
slow down a little bit and then I'll be able to beat him. But, uh, you know, so far, uh, I haven't been able to do it. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, then I went to chiropractic college in Oregon and I went to osteopathic college in Australia. Uh, and in Australia, I had a chance to train with Dr. Alec Burton, who was at the time the world's leading expert in the use of water fasting. And I was very impressed. I saw all these sick people getting well, people that I had been trained couldn't get well, did consistently. And so when I came back to the United States, my wife, Dr. Jennifer Moran, and I opened up the True North Health Center. That was in 1984. And so for the last three-plus decades, we've operated True North Health in Santa Rosa, California. I was reading an interview that you gave previously, and uh, you were asked what you learned from Dr. Banesh, and uh, your reply was that he taught me that the greatest threat to my ability to practice was well-intentioned but ignorant doctors and government officials. So, I mean, that is is, uh, a hard thing to come to grips with. You think that you've got this... Uh, way of treating disease, which is highly effective, but at the same time, you feel as if other doctors who were who were ostensibly, you know, trying to do the exact same thing that you are, and government officials are kind of saying, "No, that's not safe. That's that's wrong. That's not supported by science." So, how do you navigate that? Well, at one point, the California Board of Medical Quality Assurance issued an opinion that they felt that recommending fasting constituted such a gross violation of the standard of medical practice that arose to the level of criminal negligence. Mm. So I was actually represented by a criminal defense attorney. Um, Fortunately, it was determined that uh, recommending fasting was not criminal negligence. In fact, at one point, there was even a provision in Medicare to pay for fasting, but only as long as it was for urgent necessary weight loss for urgent surgery. So I guess if you got well, then it wouldn't be a covered benefit. But (laughs) as far as... um, you know, our, our, our issues early on because fasting seemed like such a radical uh, intervention that the dietary recommendations seemed so extreme. Uh, many of our colleagues, uh, understandably, were uh, aghast at the idea of actually applying these principles to human beings. I'm happy to say, though, that the circle has kind of it's come full circle, and now we've gone from criminal quacks to cutting-edge researchers because fasting has gained some favor, uh, and you'll see in even uh, this month, uh, Time Magazine, you'll see uh, GQ Magazine did an issue on us. The, the local news station was here filming the, you know, major uh, media certainly has uh, embraced the idea of fasting as a tool, whether it be in conjunction with something like chemotherapy or, or freestanding. Um, we published uh, most recently uh, a case report that was appeared in the British Medical Journal. So, you know... Uh, Definitely a shift in attitude about fasting, and I think about the work that we do here at True North Health. Well, the work we've done is the same for 30 years, but uh, the perception of it publicly is maybe uh, shifting finally. Mm. Now, you've really played some role in that yourself. Uh, a number of years back, you published two studies on treating high blood pressure and borderline high blood pressure, uh, and you actually teamed up with um, Dr. Colin Campbell, the author of the China study, for those in the audience who uh, may recognize the name, uh, one of the big names. And you actually uh, fasted, if I'm not mistaken, um, supervised a fast for Dr. Campbell to help him treat an issue that he was having problems with. So 
you know, you've you've kind of contributed. Has that been all along your your thought? Like, can I legitimize this very old but unsupported practice? Yeah, from the very beginning, uh, Dr. Morano, uh, my wife, Dr. Lyle, and I had determined that in order for fasting to gain any level of uh, acceptance and for us to be able to continue to practice and stay out of jail, it would be necessary to do some credible scientific research and actually publish in peer-reviewed journals the results that you know we believe that we could demonstrate. And uh, with the tremendous help of Dr. T. Colin Campbell, uh, who had had some personal experience here and then saw the work that we were doing, we were able to publish a couple papers in peer-reviewed journals. Uh, in fact, in our first paper, Medically Supervised Water-Only Fasting in the Treatment of Hypertension, we treated 170-plus consecutive patients with hypertension, all of which were able to reduce their pressure enough to eliminate medication. And the effect size in stage 3 hypertension was over 60 points, which is the largest effect size that's ever been published uh, treating high blood pressure in humans. Uh, even to this day, that's the biggest effects that have ever been demonstrated. Uh, essentially, essential hypertension will normalize with fasting, and if people are willing to do dangerous and radical things like eat good, exercise, and go to bed on time, they can usually sustain those uh, uh, improvements. So in the case of the leading cause of death and disability, we have definitely demonstrated that there is an alternative and effective way of reducing and normalizing blood pressure without taking medications that amongst their secondary effects are chronic cough, fatigue, impotence, and unfortunately death. So that certainly was good. And now we're demonstrating the application of fasting in other conditions ranging from diabetes uh, to autoimmune diseases uh, like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis. And uh, as I said recently, we just published a case report showing the successful management of a case of stage 3A follicular lymphoma. Uh, now, I actually want to talk a little bit about that last case report. Um, you know, something interesting is that uh, as in recent years, the science of fasting has really come a long way. And you see people like Dr. Voltar Longo at the University of California um, really doing some interesting research on its ability to help cancer patients uh Currently, a lot of his research is in conjunction with chemotherapy, but he's also looking at it as a standalone treatment. Um, and uh, But if you read his papers, um, he actually cites your work, for instance, in long-term fasting with hypertension, but I kind of get the sense that he doesn't view long-term fasting as a realistic option. He's He said that he thinks it's not really palatable for the general population, and so he thinks that perhaps getting people to do three-day fasts would actually optimize the results more, but they would do it more frequently. He actually doesn't support... Well, he, he, he actually suggests that, that um, intermittent fasting uh, with its limited effects may be more practical. And, of course, he's correct. Long-term water-only fasting has a caveat. It needs to be medically supervised in order to ensure that it's safe and effective. Um, that has nothing to do, though, with the efficacy of it. And, of course, he's never looked at the efficacy of water-only fasting long-term. So, you know, that's a research, fortunately, I'm happy to say, is being done now with his colleague, Luigi Fontana, and the Buck Institute of Novato has selected us as the human subjects laboratory for some uh, studies that will be done now looking specifically at long-term water-only fasting and uh, comparing that to intermittent fasting and other types of interventions. And, you know, what it turns out is that many of these mechanisms of fasting, some of the most powerful mechanisms, don't even 
kick in till much later in uh, water-only fasting. And so I think we'll be able to demonstrate very substantial both objective and subjective changes that occur uh, with long-term fasting that you will not be able to uh, get uh, as efficiently with intermittent fasting. Mm. And uh, in in uh, my understanding is that uh, Dr. Longo's view is that, uh, you know, we should, with a decent amount of frequency, be doing these shorter interval fasts or, or shorter period fasts. Um, what is your thought on how frequently we should really, a, a healthy person, person should be doing fasting, if at all? Should you, you know, well, once you've achieved a high level of health, should you, you know, periodically be topping it up with a fast? Or do you think it's pretty much, say, you, you've, you're in excellent health and you should be good to go? Well, you've got to be careful what, you, what, you, what our definition of fasting is. What mostly Dr. Longo is talking about is intermittent fasting, which is actually really more intermittent feeding, which is a question of reducing calories to maybe five or 600 calories once or twice a week, uh, and on other days perhaps limiting the feeding window so you have breakfast later and dinner earlier so that the number of hours without food between dinner and breakfast is extended. And this is a very effective uh, technique or tool uh, for progressive weight loss or, or helping reduce caloric intake. And that, of course, extends life. It reduces uh, the consequence of dietary excess, a very useful dietary management tool. And for people that have trouble maintaining their weight, they may do this on an ongoing basis. This is not the same thing as therapeutic water-only fasting. Uh, long-term water-only fasting induces a number of physiological adaptations that are really uh, unique uh, to water-only fasting, and I think we'll find, and, and we still, you know, this research has not been published, but I think we're going to find that many of these uh, biochemical mechanisms associated with uh, enhanced longevity and reduced disease uh, are induced in wa- long-term water-only fasting uh, dramatically more efficiently than in intermittent fasting. And the reason I say that is we use both of them, but in the cases of uh, patients that are sick, uh, the changes that we see with long-term water-only fasting dwarf those that we're able to accomplish with intermittent uh, fasting. Um, but nonetheless, intermittent fasting is extremely effective because most of these conditions we're talking about are caused by dietary excess. So anything you do to reduce dietary excess is likely to induce significant clinical benefit. So I am a proponent of the use of intermittent feeding or intermittent fasting as they're calling it. Um, but it's, it's a different tool than long-term water-only fasting. As far as your question about what about healthy people, um, healthy people tend to stay healthy if they eat healthfully. That, in our mind, is an exclusively plant food diet that's free of animal foods and sugar, oil, and salt. We call it a vegan SOS-free diet. SOS, of course, is the international symbol of danger, and it stands for sugars, including refined carbohydrates, oil, and added salt. Um, for people that, for whatever reason, do get involved in dietary excess, intermittent fasting may be help, helpful tool in reducing those consequences. And so we advocate people always limit their caloric intake to what the body actually needs, avoid dietary excess, and there's a number of tools to help people do that. Um, As far as uh, is longer-term fasting beneficial, I believe the answer is yes. I know personally I and many of the other doctors that practice here, the True North Health Center will periodically do um, five-day or longer water-only fasts both therapeutically and diagnostically, because if you go on a fast and everything remains stable, that's usually a good clinical sign. On the other hand, if you go on a fast and you induce various detoxification symptoms, it may be advisable to continue that fast until those symptoms resolve. Mm. And that can be anywhere from five to 40 days. And, you know, how frequently and how long you should fast really is an individual matter that we help patients determine based on their physical exam, their history, 
and uh, as well as your laboratory findings. One of the things we're hoping to develop with the work we're doing with Luigi Fontana at the Buck and the Buck Institute is looking at biomarkers that may specifically help us determine who needs to fast, how long they need to fast, when the fast is completed. And there's some very exciting biomarkers um, that have been developed. For example, we have now been authorized for a pilot study with the folks at the Oncoblot, which is uh, capable of the ENOX2 marker of doing very early detection of cancer. In fact, detecting it so early that it's not detectable by other methodology, conventional methodology. And it is our hope and belief that with fasting, we're going to be able to convert that uh, early diagnosis into a negative diagnosis, and, and it will, in fact, sustain a cancer-free state, uh, avoid or delay uh, the onset of this, these life-threatening problems. Um, we also are looking at markers with diabetes, with the development of Alzheimer's and aging in general. And again, in animal studies, there's some suggestion that these markers can be converted. Uh, in the case of rats, we know with periodic fasting, you can double lifespan. So there's definitely a uh, reason for optimism. We expect that many of these markers will become, uh, will hold up true in humans as well as what we've seen in animals. And that may help us do a better job of selecting and monitoring uh, and supervising fasting. They can actually now measure, for example, the number of mutations in B lymphocytes, which is closely associated with likelihood of development of cancer as well as aging. They can measure efficiency of autophagy in T lymphocytes, as well as the ENX2 marker. So these very sophisticated laboratory uh, technologies, these non-invasive diagnostic tests, have not been available till just recently, and nobody has yet applied them to long-term fasting in humans. That's something that'll be unique and novel in this research that we're beginning uh, to undertake this year. More broadly, talking about uh, monitoring biomarkers, uh, depending on where you go, you can find people who will supervise fasts, and they they will have various uh, ways of monitoring the fast. Uh, maybe they're testing pulse, maybe they're testing body temperature, uh, but many of them, kind of coming from the natural hygiene justification, won't be doing blood work uh, to monitor that fast and don't see it as highly important. Uh, how doing that, does that uh, bring, in your opinion, a large amount of danger into the fasting process? Well, I can tell you that, you know, we've been doing fasting supervision for over 30 years. We've had 15,000 Patients, many of them seriously ill, uh, go through this process. And so far, everybody that's walked in to do fasting uh, has been able to walk out. So we definitely have a strong safety record using our protocols. In fact, we have a paper that we'll be submitting uh, to one of the big uh, impact journals here uh, in the next month on the uh, safety of fasting. We did a safety study. We looked at over 1,100 consecutive patients and all the outcome data. And it is absolutely clear that fasting, when it's done according to this protocol, uh, can be safe and effective. Uh, and it's exceptionally important to have a good medical history, a proper physical exam, and the baseline laboratory testing prior to fasting. And the reason is you need to establish a baseline so you can tell the difference between a healing crisis, which is an acute attempt by the body to heal itself, from a problem. And if you don't have that data, you are practicing blind. And most of the time, because fasting isn't a biological adaptation, it is a naturally safe process. Most of the time it works out well, but sometimes it doesn't. And many of the practitioners that have um, felt that it was unnecessary to do an effective and efficient job at evaluating patients ultimately run into a problem where they kill people and then often leave the country or run into other difficulties. And, of course, it creates a terribly bad name uh, for the use of fasting. Mm -hmm. When fasting is done to a according to protocol, 
it is safe and effective. When it's not done to a protocol and you take the chances uh, of running into a situation where uh, a critical problem isn't recognized, appropriate action isn't taken, and then the outcomes can be uh, unfortunate. As you look around the world and survey other people who are running FAST, are there other centers besides True North that you say these people are doing a good job, I would recommend them? Or uh, would you say that True North is really the only one that uh, operates at your standard? Oh, no, there's a number of places around the world that do a good job of what they do. And what they do is usually intermittent fasting. For example, the Birkenauer Clinic in Germany is run by highly competent people with extensive experience. They don't do water-only fasting, but they do a modified version of fasting on limited calories. And, of course, that is a much gentler um, and and reasonably uh, safe uh, method, particularly using the protocols they do. But I might point out they also do take a proper history, do a physical exam, order laboratory testing, and monitor their patients. Um, so this idea of, you know, not paying attention to what's going on, I think is it would be very unfortunate. Usually it's that type of attitude is advocated by people that don't have the ability, the training, the background, or the um, access to doing uh, the necessary type of testing. So they rationalize uh, the practice that it's not necessary. Um, I would strongly disagree with that. As far as medically supervised long-term water-only fasting, uh, True North Health Center certainly is uh, the major player uh, in that uh, in the world right now. There are other doctors, though. Some of the 30 doctors a year that we train are opening up facilities. There will be a facility opening up in Ohio um, probably uh, later in the summer. Uh, Dr. Frank Sabatino is opening up uh, a facility in Florida. Um, these are all going to be operated by competent people that will follow these standards and do a good job of uh, medically supervised fasting. That's great. So it sounds like these practices, which uh, you've been, uh, did you say you opened in 1984? That's correct. So roughly 31, 30, 31 years, uh, you know, you've been advocating for this and it's really getting to the point where, okay, we've created enough of a background in the scientific literature and we've created enough of a standard that people can then bring this to other areas of the the world and really establish it as a, a credible practice. Well, the True North Health Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit public education and research organization. So our mission is public education and research and part of that is training doctors to be able to operate facilities so that fasting uh, can be done effectively, it can be done safely, and it can be more broadly available. Mm, that's great. Um, let's uh, jump now to your recently published case study on fasting a woman who had uh, lymphoma. Could you could you tell us a little bit about that woman's background and uh, how you went about treating her? Well, this was a 42-year-old female who's diagnosed with follicular lymphoma stage 3, and they'd done an excisional biopsy, uh, you know, spiral CT, um, she had been uh, followed for two years by uh, the doctors at one of the major uh, medical schools, and the condition had continued to progress. She felt very badly, and so they were contemplating, uh, you know, conventional treatment at that point. Conventional treatment for lymphoma has some limitations. It's often uh, delayed until uh, symptoms make it, uh, from their viewpoint, the only alternative. Uh, her primary doctor was um, not happy uh, with her queries about the relationship that diet might play with her condition and certainly not with fasting. Her oncologist uh, was also quite skeptical, but in any case, she came in and fasted for 21 days 
on water only and had 10 days of refeeding at the Children's Health Center, during which time her um, very large, easily palpated external cancers um, resolved uh, and became non-detectable uh, by palpation. During this time, she lost 22 pounds. She went from 174 to 152, which is just about what you'd expect on a three-week fast, about a pound a day. Um, we, at two months, uh, she followed up with um, her oncologist, who was, uh, you know, expressed uh, rather amazement that these tumors had disappeared, discussed with her what she had done. She explained to her that she'd undergone water-only fasting. Uh, he let her know that although her tumors were no longer palpable, she still had uh, some neutropenia, which is an excessively low white count. Fortunately, by 12 months, uh, she had continued to comply with the diet. Her white count had normalized. Her weight was at 132, down from originally uh, 181. And uh, she felt uh, fabulous. Um, we were able to uh, convince her oncologist to do follow-up spiral CTs. And uh, then we submitted an article to the uh, British Medical Journal. Uh, they went through several reviews, ultimately agreed to publish. The case report appeared in uh, British Medical Journal uh, about a month ago. Uh, so... I wrote to the uh, oncologist. I thanked him for the confidence he had shown in referring his patient as for therapeutic fasting and invited him to sign on as co-author of the uh, study. Uh, we're still waiting to hear back from him, but, uh, you know, maybe he's uh, eventually. As far as uh, patient, patient continues to do well and continues to be compliant, which is really the problem because you're not curing lymphoma any more than you're curing obesity or hypertension or diabetes. You're just managing it. If you go back to eating a greasy, slimy, fatty, dead, decaying flesh diet, you're going to get fat again. If you go back to eating highly processed foods, you're going to get sick again. And I expect there's no difference uh, in the case of lymphoma. If you go back to doing the things that cause the problem, eventually the problem will return. So we don't see it as a cure. We see it as a management strategy. In this case, it was a very successful management strategy. Now, uh the woman still technically has some existing tumors, so will she fast more in the future, or just uh, just kind of? Yeah, we'll be doing uh, we'll be doing uh, yearly fasting or more, depending on how her clinical presentation uh, is. Uh, so, fasting is a is a tool that we use in healthy people, but also in people that are trying to maintain remission, particularly in conditions like lymphoma or autoimmune disease. Periodic fasting turns out to be very helpful, uh, keeping the body. Uh, caught up and uh, and recalibrated. In my experience, I, I fasted for 26 days previously, and uh, the reason was uh, I, for years I suffered with an intestinal disease called colitis, which you're very familiar with. I was able to bring it under control just by adopting a raw food diet, but the, the fast, at which I had done after eating a number of years on a raw food diet, really made an impact. I'm curious to know if you find that there are instances like that, I know that you are not a, a big proponent of a raw diet, but do you find that there's some that need to really modify their diet significantly because of the conditions they're coming from in order to have health? Or do you are you of the opinion that, you know, someone should be able to eat the diet you suggest with, uh, you know, starches and, and cooked uh, foods as, as well, long as they have, you know, enough greens and, and fruit as well? You have to modify the diet to meet the needs of the individual. 
And, you know, at the True North Health Center, people that can get well on their dietary manipulation alone often don't have to come to us. You know, they're, they're well. We see the people that despite their best efforts, whatever their dietary program, whether they're doing a McDougal-based starch program or an Esselstein diet, they're working with Joel Furman, whoever they're working with, for whatever reason, they haven't gotten the consistent progress that they need. They often will come to the True North Health Center for medically supervised fasting and then go back on a exclusively plant foods, SOS-free diet. Now, we can talk about, you know, there's some challenges to 100% raw food diets because they tend to be higher in sugar and higher in fat the way they're often applied, where there are a lot of fruit and nuts, um, some vegetable material. And for some people, that doesn't work. If you can do a raw food diet that shifts into a vegetable-dominated program, you can use blended and juiced vegetables, or you can also use heat to process those vegetables. And I would argue that we've been using heat to process vegetables a lot longer than we've been using juicers and blenders. But, you know, that's an academic discussion. The point is, as long as the diet is an exclusively plant foods diet, it's free of sugar, oil, and salt, and it meets the individual's needs, uh, I got no problem whether it's 100% raw, 80% raw, 60% raw. All of our diets dominated by uh, raw foods for most people, just because, you know, that's the foundation. Fruits and vegetables are the foundation of the diet. The difference is that we will use heat to process some vegetable material, starchy vegetables, rather than pour olive oil over stuff or give people access to, you know, what in our mind might be excessive amounts of juices or dried fruits or things of this nature. Uh, just to clarify, uh, you're, when you're talking about sugar, you're not objecting to the natural sugars found in fruit. Well, I think if you take fruit and you dry it, you juice it, you process it, you can end up with an excessively high sugar concentration. When we use fruit, we just talk about whole food, whole fruit. Yeah. Uh, and, and though whole fruit generally is a good thing within a reasonable quantity in the diet, juices, dried fruits can in some cases become excessive, and particularly when they're the entire source of caloric intake for people. Now, some people, as you well know, with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, can't tolerate large amounts of uh, raw vegetable materials initially. You know, sometimes you have to process the food or use um, some steamed vegetables and other things uh, in order to be able to bring the inflammatory process in the corner of control. If you use fasting, sometimes post-fasting, then that inflammation is down. You have a little more flexibility in the diet. But, but the point is you have to modify the diet to meet the needs of the individual. You can't just philosophically decide this diet is the, the right diet and therefore everybody has to be shoved into that diet even if their body's digestive system can't adapt to that. Some people, for example, are very sensitive to products like lectins or other things you find in grains. They can't tolerate grains. For those individuals, we'll use starchy vegetable material as an alternative. There's no, there's no one food that's so critical that you can't design a diet that avoids the, that food. We kind of jumped into these questions uh, right off the bat, and I think there's probably some people in the audience who are uh, in a little bit over their head. I was wondering if we could backtrack a little bit, and uh, could you just talk a little bit about maybe some of the conditions that you found yep. respond really well to fasting and the ones that you think just shouldn't like preclude fasting? Well, the conditions that respond the best, the most dramatically to fasting, are the conditions caused by dietary excess. So cardiovascular disease and high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, autoimmune diseases where it's the immune system of the body that's attacking itself, like rheumatoid arthritis and ulcerative colitis and ankylosing spondylitis, um, lupus, psoriasis, eczema, asthma. These conditions all respond consistently and often dramatically uh, to water-only fasting. Uh, conditions that are not associated with dietary excess, genetically uh, mediated conditions, uh, certain forms of uh, neurological difficulties that you know may not respond to fasting, or fasting may even be 
contraindicated. So uh, fasting is not for everybody. And certainly people that are unduly afraid of fasting, people that uh, are not ready to actually go through what can be an intense and sometimes miserable process. Uh, fasting is not always pleasant. It can be rather dramatic when the body generates an acute process and creates what we call a healing crisis. Um, so you have to have a patient that's basically highly motivated and conscientious. Uh, these are people that are able to be effective with fasting. And also, somebody not willing to make diet and lifestyle changes shouldn't be fasting because they're not going to be able to sustain the results. So, you know, at True North Health Center, we're very careful to select people that we expect are going to have good results and make us look good. So, you know, we try to only work with people that are going to be happy with the result. Up until now in this interview, we've been talking about the tools in the toolbox of someone who thinks natural hygiene makes a lot of sense. Things like diet and lifestyle and fasting and things like that. Now we're going to get a little bit geeky with the idea of natural hygiene itself. Previously, I told you that the underlying idea of natural hygiene or ideas have generally been mocked or ignored by gen by most doctors. They think it's kind of nonsensical. So I didn't tell you what that was. Natural hygiene says that health is the natural state of man and that everyone will vector towards health when we essentially get out of our own way and stop harming ourselves and live within the stress boundaries, the physical and emotional and mental stress boundaries of what our bodies can handle. Natural hygienists believe that when you have a symptom of disease like fever or vomiting or diarrhea or swelling, inflammation, that these are attempts of the body to heal itself. And if you interfere with these processes, with drugs, say, something that's going to stop a fever, that you're actually interfering with your body's self-healing mechanism. And so this can prevent a recovery or dramatically delay it. We're now actually getting to the point where we have quite a bit of evidence to support this. For instance, uh, I maybe about uh, five months ago, I did a video on fevers and how when patients are admitted to a hospital in critical condition, that those who have fevers that are given something like a Tylenol or something to fight their fever are actually more likely to die than those who are simply not given anything to fight their fever. But this is a very hard pill for anyone in the medical industry to swallow because their whole system of reacting to disease is basically to fight symptoms. Stop the body from doing that is essentially what they're saying. And you know what? The medical industry is really, really great at fighting symptoms. Sometimes they succeed in completely removing the symptom. But very often, the person doesn't really recover and reach a full level of vitality. One of the great synthesizers of natural hygiene ideas and a prolific writer was Dr. Herbert Shelton, and uh, he had a huge problem with the medical industry, and he didn't like how science was being used by it and wrote about his problems with it. Uh, but unfortunately, one of the side effects of this was that people who believe in natural hygiene are very often anti-science. In other words, if science tells us something about diet or, uh, you know, reflects on some element of natural hygiene and tells us this was a good idea or this was a bad idea, they tend to be very dismissive. They're more interested in the dogma 
of natural hygiene than in the science of it. It's a very unfortunate situation and it makes people do some dumb things. These people are therefore more likely to believe what was written by a doctor in the late 1800s, early 1900s than what modern medical research tells us. It's a kind of a sad state. If you know my work, you know that I generally am interested in talking about what the latest science has to tell us about health within the framework of natural hygiene. But a lot of times people will be dismissive of this if they come from that background because they say, you know, that's that I'd ra- that's against what this guy in in 1898 wrote in this book I read. So obviously it's wrong and it's just really an annoying uh, way of looking at it. So uh, I want to ask Dr. Goldhammer what he thinks about this this disconnect between science and uh, natural hygiene. I don't think that Dr. Shelton was uh, against science at all. He was against physicians in their, in their misuse of science. And so his argument was that me- modern medicine was not scientific, uh, that it was really more of a religion. And so he was actually not, if you read his book, uh, Shelton's book, Human Life, Its Philosophy and Laws, which was kind of his main overview, I think he was a very scientifically oriented individual that was trying to use science uh, and scientific methodology to explain and uh, develop uh, recommendations that were going to promote health and healing. And he pioneered the advocacy of a plant-based diet, as well as uh, was kind of the modern synthesizer of information about the use of fasting. Uh, so I, I just don't think that he was anti-science. I think he was anti-medicine. Um, but as we know, uh, not all aspects of modern medicine are, are scientific. I'm curious to know how you look at what Shelton was teaching because really he was synthesizing material that had been building up. Um, I guess we could say since the 1800s, but really, you know, some of these practices go back to antiquity. Um, and a lot of it today we can look at and say, okay, well, most of that is good, but maybe there's some questionable things here. How have you sorted through the different elements of natural hygiene to, to find what you consider to be, uh, the best parts without, uh, while discarding discarding the elements that you think are, are no longer supported by science? Well, it's basic scientific methodology. You know, Dr. Shelton used the scientific method to try to figure out what to do based on the limited information that was available. Now we have a lot more information available, and so we're able to, you know, it grows. It's, an, it's a living kind of process. It's not a dogma. It's not a, a religious, you know, uh, a dogma. This is a, uh, a... Hygiene means the science of health. That's why Herbert picked that word uh, to describe this approach. Uh, and so science means we continue to learn. We use scientific methodology, a way of looking at things. And so I think today, if, if Shelton were alive, he would be saying much the same things that, that we are. That, uh, you know, the philosophy is health results from healthful living, and science helps us figure out what we mean by healthful living and how can we apply it in the most effective way possible. And so, you know, obviously, you know, what we believe today may be different than what we believe tomorrow as we learn more. And one of the reasons we're actively involved in doing primary research is because this is all virgin territory uh, in the sense that nobody's really had a chance to use these new tools uh, as it applies to long-term water fasting, because up till now nobody's been doing long-term water fasting as a scientific method. So that's something that the Truman Health Foundation is really helping pioneer. And we know now, uh, like for example with fasting, we know that fasting decreases glucose and IGF-1. 
Uh, we didn't know about insulin growth factor 1 and its role in aging uh, in the past. We know that fasting decreases blood pressure and heart rate in part because of the studies that we did with T. Colin Campbell from Cornell. We know that fasting decreases insulin, and we're learning more about how critical insulin is in, in managing health. We know that fasting decreases inflammation and oxidation, and up till recently, we didn't have acute phase reactive proteins and other objective markers of inflammation. Uh, so that's new. We know that fasting decreases total microbial load, particularly the, in the gut microbiome. And now we're learning what, how important the gut microbiome may be to our health and to you know, overall um, vitality and immunology. Uh, we know that fasting decreases leptin. We didn't know about leptin until recently, and that, that's the satiety hormone. And that may be a reason why fasting is helpful at helping people overcome chronic overeating. We know that fasting increases insulin sensitivity, and it increases cellular stress resistance in adaptation. And you're learning about that from Walter Lanco's work, showing how rats with cancer, when they're radiated, die. But if you fast the rats, the ability to withstand the stresses of treatment and the vulnerability of cancer increases with fasting. We know that fasting increases autophagy, the, the cell's ability to kill off cancer cells and in, infections. And we'll be studying that in more detail with the work we're doing with Luigi Fontana, where they can actually quantify the effectiveness of T-lymphocytes autophagic, autophagic activity. We know that fasting normalizes the gut microbiota, it stimulates B-cell immunity. We didn't know about these issues uh, in, the, in the time of Shelton. And that it reverses all major abnormalities of metabolic syndrome. And metabolic syndrome has only been recently recognized because, frankly, it's only since 1980s that we started heavily federalizing, uh, federally subsidizing things like high fructose corn syrup, uh, that we've seen this epidemic of obesity explode. Where now you've, you've got the majority of people are overweight or obese. If you're not fat, you're actually abnormal now. The epidemic of diabetes in children is a consequence of this nonsense that we feed them. And so, you know, of course, we're changing our attitudes and recommendations because the population we're treating is changing. People are becoming fatter and sicker by the day, and they're on more and more medications. And so what, you know, Shelton was able to do, uh, you know, 50 years ago uh, with fasting is going to be different than what we do today because the patients that we're treating are different. I uh, really appreciate that view um, because in my experience talking to proponents of natural hygiene, um, it tends to be more the dogma and very dismissive of the available science. So I think it's really awesome that you're incorporating that. Um, I'm curious, have you uh, had to change your mind anything on anything recently? Uh, you know, some data came to light and you said, well, actually, that maybe that wasn't the best practice. Has, has that happened recently? Well, I, there's definitely been areas of controversy. I actually um, was one of the first people, I believe, that was arguing uh, in natural hygiene circles that vitamin B12 may be an exception to the rule that pills do more problems than they solve because I looked at the literature and felt that there was evidence that B12 deficiency was, in fact, a potential issue uh, for vegans over the long term. And at that time, many of the hygienic doctors argued that, you know, supplementation was never necessary. The body was able to always meet its needs. As it turns out, now I think there's a general consensus that vitamin B12 does require supplementation uh, in people uh, living a, uh, a health-promoting vegan diet because the bacterial exposure from the environment with our modern hygienic practices, with washing and peeling and being very careful to avoid excess bacterial exposure, for the purpose of avoiding worms and parasites and other life-compromising problems, does limit our bacterial exposure. And I know when I was 16, I began to do an experiment personally to determine whether or not on a vegan diet with no supplementation, no fortified foods, and no contamination with any B12, 
um, factors, whether or not uh, depletion would occur. And I tracked myself from 16 till it took till about 42. So it's about 26 years. But eventually I was able to demonstrate B12 deficiency with elevated MMAs and homocysteine. So I proved to myself you could eventually deplete B12. Now, granted, it took 20 years, but nonetheless, I've seen many cases of B12 deficiency in otherwise uh, healthy uh, vegan patients, and it is easily corrected with um, methylcobalamin. So we do recommend, for example, 1,000 micrograms of methylcobalamin a day for our vegan patients. Uh, and that certainly was controversial, you know, a few decades ago. I don't think it is so much today. Uh, there continues to be some controversy over another vitamin, vitamin D. We know the best source of vitamin D is the sun. And people that get out in the sun regularly generally maintain normal D levels. However, people live behind plate glass windows. They live in places on the planet where the sun is not hot enough much of the year to form vitamin D. And as a consequence, we see a lot of vitamin D felt. Uh, vitamin D deficiency. So again, the answer would be get out in the sun or get a sun lamp, but if you're not doing that, then supplementation with vitamin D may also be an issue. Unlike B12, though, where there's no risk of excess B12, vitamin D is a fat-soluble nutrient, so you want to be on the least amount of D necessary to maintain optimum levels and not take it um, willy-nilly because excess vitamin D toxicity can, you know, is an issue. Um, fasting duration, you know, they used to do very long-term fast, 60 days, 80 days, maybe 100 days. Uh, we don't do that. We limit fasting generally to about 40 days because we found that complications on these short fasts of 40 days or less generally are very limited. When you start getting into longer fasts, uh, there's a bit of a problem that can happen if you get it too close to depletion and shifting from fasting to starving. So, you know, we are very conservative with that. Um, and, you know, that is at odds with perhaps with some of the practices where there were practitioners uh, of yesteryear. Now, uh, at your facility, I know you uh, serve people distilled water while they're fasting. And uh, uh, it also seems on your website that you're promoting that people buy water distillers and, and consume that. I'm curious to know what your rationale is in terms of, uh, you know, what, what sort of damage is being done by people just drinking tap water? Or is it, or is it well, merely when people are fasting that you're concerned about we, it? We just want people to drink purified water. It doesn't ha necessarily have to be steam distilled. There's also effective reverse osmosis. There's other systems of purification. What you don't want is to get, you know, hydrogenated halocarbons and chlorine and toxic metals and parasites and cryptosporidia and God knows what else that's showing up in the uh, municipal water systems uh, because they can be health compromising. Um, so what we want is just water. If you had a pure environment and you got rain, rainwater would be distilled water, for example. Uh, it used to be spring water could be counted on as safe. Today that we've done such a good job of polluting our fresh and salt water uh, resources that no water uh, can be guaranteed to be safe unless it's purified effectively. The most effective purification systems is steam distillation. Water fasting patients are very sensitive and they won't tolerate municipal water. So we take water we pre-filter it, we steam distill it, and then we post-filter it. And that ends up with just being H2O, which is really all you need. There's no problem with the mineral issues in the water because, you know, one apple is going to have more minerals than the water you're going to drink uh, that day. And so getting minerals you do plentifully from your uh, diet, uh, especially high mineral content vegetable-based diet. So the small trace amounts of questionably absorbable minerals, including heavy metals from your water supply, is certainly not a nutritional deficit. 
uh, a lot of the old wives' tales that distilled water is hungry, water is going to suck all the minerals out of your body isn't supported by the facts. So what I would suggest is that whatever water you feel comfortable drinking is great. Distilled water is probably the most consistent and reliable. It doesn't require replacement of um, filters in order to be effective. And, you know, so it's the water that we prefer. It's the water that we use. But, you know, there's certainly other ways of purifying water. I don't think patients need to spend $6,000 to alkalinize their water, for example. If you really wanted to alkalinize your water, I mean, you could do that in, in a number of very simple ways. I don't know that there's, there's any problem um, with uh, using either distilled water or any other effective filtration method to ensure that our water is pure. Uh, so uh, when you when you make that recommendation, is it more on the theory that we know these things are present in the water and that in theory, in, in, in enough quantity, they could be damaging? Or is it that uh, you, are you aware of specific studies showing that there's uh, deleterious health effects from consuming well, this water? You can just read the paper. I mean, you've got 200,000 people that got exposed to cryptosporidium in Minneapolis despite their filtering uh, water filter systems you've got. There's no question there's various levels of lead and trace minerals and pesticide residues and nitrates. You've just got this business in Flint, Michigan, where you know, you've got lead in the water secondary to leaching from the pipes. If you distill water, all you're going to be getting is water. So it's a way of ensuring that any of these point-of-use um, issues is no longer uh, a concern. And so, you know, that's why we advocate. And there's, no, there's not much question about it. If, you, if people are interested, then go on our website at, at uh, um, healthpromoting.com, and we have an article on there that talks about water filtration, distillation, filtration, the advantages, disadvantages in great detail. So they can look there, and it's, and it's well-referenced. Kind of shifting gears here, one of the, you know, we can have all the health that we want uh, brought about through uh, physical pursuits, you know, having exercise, having sunshine, eating the right diet. Uh, but the mind is another matter. I understand that you have a meditation practice. Could you speak a little bit about uh, why you meditate and what that brings to you? Well, I think that uh, relaxation techniques, uh, meditation techniques and, and related uh, procedures can be extremely helpful at people, keeping people focused on their, on the big picture, so to speak, uh, getting them in touch with who they are, what they think, why they think it and not being um, so wrapped up in some of the emotional volatility that dominates people's lives. So I think that it's a very useful grounding tool, just like exercise is a useful grounding tool. Um, and so, you know, uh, I incorporate meditation in my own practice as well as into the training that we do for patients here um, at the True North Health Center. So, you know, it is something that we uh, try to teach people to do, and, and, and many people find it's very helpful incorporating into their personal practices. And there's many modalities of meditation. Is there one that you found to be particularly uh, effective for you? Well, actually, I've been trained in a number of different uh, techniques of meditation, ranging from yogic meditation to TM. And so I've kind of have my own personal blend, but I think, you know, people have to work on that themselves. It's just like exercise. You know, there's not just one form of exercise that's good. I think it's good to incorporate a variety of uh, or at least expose yourself to a variety of techniques and procedures and then find the stuff that resonates for you personally. You know, we should also talk about the neurochemistry, though, of uh, the brain. Uh, brain-derived neurotrophic factors, for example, and the receptors associated with them increase with exercise. They also increase with fasting. And some of the research that we're doing right now with the buck involve trying to quantify some of these objective markers that are associated with the development of Alzheimer's disease 
and and dementia. And it is, I think, fascinating to me that that this BDNF, this brain-derived neurotrophic factor, um, is associated increasing with both exercise and fasting. It's associated with increased synaptic plasticity and neuronal resistance to injury. So um, it's these these neurochemistry are, I think, really fascinating because something that shows protection against um, damage uh, uh, neuronally also can mediate uh, responses, for example, in fasting, BDNF regulates appetite. So when you, you know, people go on a fast and they come off fast, everybody thinks they're going to be all ravenous and want to eat everything. But in fact, uh, oftentimes after fasting, people have better apostatic control. They find they don't need to eat uh, obsessively like they might have in the past. And then it's helpful in ter- it can be helpful in terms of regulating dietary excess and all the problems that are associated with that. So normalizing, rebooting your system, it's kind of like taking a corrupted hard drive on a computer you, and you turn it off and you turn it on and, the, and when you reboot, a lot of corruption gets cleared out. Fasting seems to work the same way in humans. It's kind of like a way of rebooting your own hard drive or your brain. Mm. So meditation then is kind of like a a way of bringing about that uh, reset, but in your everyday life? I think, yeah, I think meditation may work very similar to the way the exercise works in terms of uh, just helping people um, stay refocused. Mm. And the brain is very powerful. It's obviously one of the dominant factors that makes us humans. And so anything we can do to keep our brain neurochemistry clean, like fasting and diet, or uh, our thought processes efficient, like exercise, meditation, I think these are all worth uh, exploring. Do you have any kind of specific thing, like you sit down in the morning for an hour, or like what, what does your own practice look like? You, you mentioned you use several techniques, but... Yeah, my meditation practice is, is involved in, in the time prior to going to bed at night, so that's the last thing that I do is go through meditative routine, uh, and I find that helps uh, in terms of efficiency and effectiveness of the quality of my sleep and function as a, as a whole. This is a little bit of a shift, but, um, you know, you, it sounds like you're very passionate about your work. You're, uh, you know, and you've, you've been doing it for so long and, uh, you're, you're kind of married to it, but outside of, of what you do, if you, if you just had a day off that you could do anything you wanted, would you be working or would you, uh, would you have something specific you would want to do or what, what else in your life are you really passionate about? Well, I believe that it's important to have a balanced life. I'm very fortunate. I'm married to a lovely woman who has put up with me for 33 years. Um, I have uh, two children and two grandchildren, so I certainly enjoy the time that I have uh, interacting with my grandchildren. My grandson is 11. He calls me the AO, which apparently stands for Ancient One. <laughs> and uh, I, I enjoy uh, that time. I play basketball four times a week. And that's certainly my primary source of exercise. So I get up early and I play uh, full-court basketball uh, Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday mornings and uh, Wednesday nights. And, and that's certainly a good thing. That's a, a humbleizing thing, particularly when I play with Dr. Lyle and he crushes me. Um, and I like to hike. Uh, I do some hiking uh, with my wife, which we enjoy. Um, but most of my time is actually spent at the True North Health Center. Um, and you know, it's because I have the best job in the world because the patients do all the work, the body does the healing and all we have to do is try to 
take credit for the good results. And, and now in my work with the True North Health Foundation, we have some, you know, it's really exciting every day because we're getting a chance to look at stuff that nobody's had a chance to look at before. And we do something so novel here. The 30 intern doctors that train with us a year say that this is the first time in their practice often that they've ever seen anybody get well. Because mm. understand in a conventional medicine, if you treat these conditions like high blood pressure, you're told, take these drugs and you'll be on these drugs the rest of your life, because if you follow conventional medical protocol, they guarantee you, you'll never get well. Do what they tell you, you'll be sick forever. You'll never get well, you'll be on the drugs forever. And yet we're able to do the thing that they can't do, which is actually get people well. And if people get well, the need for medication is eliminated, and they can often stabilize themselves without having to use these toxic drugs and their long-term consequences. So it is exciting, because we're able to do something that everybody else says, uh, up till now, couldn't be done, wouldn't be done, um, would be dangerous or ineffective. And we're actually able to show that, no, in fact, fasting would be a safe and effective way of helping people get well, and diet, sleep, and exercise are the keys to be able to stay well. And there's probably nothing that our society needs better right now, both to save the individuals that are living here as well as to save the planet itself, is to help people learn that health is the result of healthful living and how to do that. Mm. Okay, great. Um, so, Dr. Goldhammer, thank you very much for joining us. We've uh, just about done an hour, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I would just mention, if any of your viewers uh, are interested, we do offer a free consultation for any of your viewers that contact the True North Health Center. If they want to go to our website, complete the registration forms, which gets me their medical history, they can call in, and I'll be happy to give them a consult without any cost. Uh, just by calling True North Health Center, they can go to our website at healthpromoting.com. Okay, and I will provide links for that uh, in the show notes uh, that people can see. Okay. Thank you for having me on. I hope you're enjoying the Renaissance Humans podcast and that you got a lot out of this episode. Know that this is a free podcast. As long as I keep producing them, you're not going to have to pay anything. If you're broke, it's cool. You don't have to contribute. But also know that this is not free to produce. It takes a lot of my time to create this show, to do the interviews, to edit the podcast, to create the show notes, to get it up and out so you can enjoy it. And if you do appreciate this work and you want to see more of it, I would be very grateful if you would join the growing number of people who have decided that they want to throw at least a buck a month at Renaissance Humans in all its various forms and to help keep it going. As an added incentive, Dr. Goldhammer has offered to answer questions from the audience, and we will be publishing a new podcast with him coming up. Uh, so if you would like to ask him a question on anything we talked about today or uh, some other topic that you think is pertinent, then uh, you're going to have an opportunity to do so if you are on that uh, monthly donors list. So uh, we've already got 18 people signed up, and uh, if you want to uh, join them and being on to ask a question and uh, perhaps if I can set up the technology right to vote on other people's questions, then uh, you can go to renaissancehumans.com forward slash support. That's renaissancehumans.com forward slash support and uh, sign up to make a monthly donation. You can also make a one-time donation if you're not comfortable with the monthly option. 
there is actually two other ways that you can help make the Renaissance Humans podcast grow and be sustainable, and that is to help me spread the word to other people. So one is you can send it to your friends, you can also share it on social media, uh, but really uh, an important thing would be to go to your iTunes account and find the Renaissance Humans podcast in the iTunes store and give it a five-star review and a few words about why you like it. Uh, That'll help a lot of people uh, find it and uh, start to enjoy it. Thanks for your time and uh, have a great day.